Part One, Chapter Ten of the Story of the Barbary Corsairs by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James K. White. Chapter Ten, Barbarossa in France, fifteen thirty-nine to fifteen forty-six. Barbarossa's life was drawing to a close, but in the eight years that remained, he enhanced his already unrivalled renown. His first exploit after Provesa was the recapture of Castelnuovo, which the Allied fleets had seized in October as some compensation on land for their humiliation at sea. The Turkish armies had failed to recover the fortress in January 1539, but in July Barbarossa went to the front as usual with a fleet of 200 galleys, large and small, and all his best captains, and after some very pretty fighting in the Gulf of Cataro, landed 84 of his heaviest guns, and bombarded Castelnuovo from three well-placed batteries. On August 7th, a sanguinary assault secured the first line of the defenses. Three days later, the governor, Don Francisco Sarmiento, and his handful of Spaniards surrendered to a final assault and were surprised to find themselves chivalrously respected as honorable foes. Three thousand Spaniards had fallen and eight thousand Turks in the course of the siege one more campaign and barbarossa's feats are over great events were happening on the algerine coasts where we must return after too long an absence in the levant and adriatic but first the order of years must be neglected that we may see the last of the most famous of all the corsairs to make amends for the coldness of henry the eighth francis i was allied with the other great maritime power turkey against the emperor in fifteen forty three and the old sea-rover actually brought his fleet of 150 ships to Marseilles. The French captains saluted the Corsair's Capitana, and the banner of Our Lady was lowered to be replaced by the Crescent. Well may a French admiral call this the impious alliance. On his way, Barbarossa enjoyed a raid in quite his old style, burnt Reggio, and carried off the governor's daughter, appeared off the Tiber, and terrified the people of Civita Vecchia and in july entered the gulf of lyons in triumph here he found the young duke of Anguin, francois de bourbon commander of the french galleys who received him with all honor and ceremony barbarossa had hardly arrived when he discovered that his great expedition was but a fool's errand the king of france was afraid of attempting a serious campaign against the emperor and he was already ashamed of his alliance with the mussulmans his own subjects nay all europe were crying shame barbarossa grew crimson with fury and tore his white beard he had not come with a vast fleet all the way from stambol to be made a laughing-stock something must evidently be done to satisfy his honor and francis i unwillingly gave orders for the bombardment of nice accompanied by a feeble and ill-prepared french contingent which soon ran short of ammunition fine soldiers cried the corsair to fill their ships with wine casks and leave the powder barrels behind barbarossa descended upon the gate of italy the city soon surrendered but the fort held out defended by one of those invincible foes of the turk a knight of malta paolo simeoni who had himself experienced captivity at the hands of barbarossa and as the french protested against sacking the town after capitulation on terms and as Charles's relieving army was advancing, the camps were broken up in confusion, 
and the fleets retired from Nice. The people of Toulon beheld a strange spectacle that winter. The beautiful harbor of Provence was allotted to the Turkish admiral for his winter quarters. There, at anchor, lay the immense fleet of the Grand Seigneur, and who knew how long it might dominate the fairest province of France? There turbaned Mussulmans paced the decks and bridge, below and beside which hundreds of Christian slaves sat chained to the bench and victims to the lash of the boatswain. Frenchmen were forced to look on helplessly, while Frenchmen groaned in the infidels' galleys within the security of a French port. The captives died by hundreds of fever during that winter, but no Christian burial was allowed them. Even the bells that summoned the pious to the mass were silenced, for are they not the devil's musical instrument? And the gaps in the benches were filled by nightly raids among the neighboring villages. It was ill sleeping around Toulon when the corsair press-gangs were abroad, and to feed and pay these rapacious allies was a task that went near to ruining the finances of France. The French were not satisfied of the corsair's fidelity, and it must be added that the emperor might have had some reason to doubt the honesty of Doria. The two greatest admirals of the age were both in the western Mediterranean, but nothing could tempt them to come to blows. The truth was that each had a great reputation to lose, and each preferred to go to his grave with all his fame undimmed. Francis I had a suspicion that Barbarossa was meditating the surrender of Toulon to the emperor, and improbable as it was, some color was given to the king's anxiety by the amicable relations which seemed to subsist between the Genoese corsair and his Barbary rival. Doria gave up the captive Dragut to his old captain, for a ransom of three thousand gold crowns, a transaction on which he afterwards looked back with unqualified regret. The situation was growing daily more unpleasant for France. From his easy position in Toulon, Barbarossa sent forth squadrons under Sali Reis and other commanders to lay waste the coasts of Spain, while he remained lazily engaged in emptying the coffers of the French king. At last they got rid of him, Francis was compelled to furnish the pay and rations of the whole crews and troops of the Ottoman fleet, up to their re-entry into the Bosphorus. He had to free four hundred Mohammedan galley-slaves and deliver them to Barbarossa. He loaded them with jewelry, silks, and other presents. The corsair departed in a corsair's style, weighed down with spoil. His homeward voyage was one long harrying of the Italian coasts. His galley sailed low with human freight and his arrival at Constantinople was the signal for the filling of all the harems of the great pashas with beautiful captives. Barbarossa, laden with such gifts, was sure of his welcome. Two years later he died, in July 1546, an old man of perhaps near ninety, yet without surviving his great fame. Valorous yet prudent, furious in attack, foreseeing in preparation. He ranks as the first sea captain of his time. The chief of the sea is dead. Expressed in three Arabic words, gives the numerical value 953, the year of the Hijra in which Kir ed din Barbarossa died. Long afterwards, no Turkish fleet left the Golden Horn without her crew repeating a prayer and firing a salute over the tomb at Beshiktash, where lie the bones of the first great Turkish admiral. End of Part 1, Chapter 10 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista